not only was I asked to go to Thailand to work on American Express, but I was given the opportunity to be the general manager of the office. And I would hide in my office because I was uncomfortable, not speaking the language, not, not really knowing whether I was being culturally sensitive or not. And so I just kept writing what we call decks, as if somehow it'll be magically seen in my paperwork what a great guy I am. I ended up going to a big client meeting, and in the first five minutes, they stopped paying attention to me and started speaking Thai, and it was like I was invisible. I went back home, and I started to cry almost uncontrollably because I just felt so rejected, and I felt like such a failure. And I called my sponsor, who had actually been instrumental in, in moving me from Chicago to Thailand, and I said, I made a terrible mistake. I'm Shreen Patek, and this is Starting Out. To today's podcast, where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing world to find out their stories, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special power that makes their craft so remarkable. From college dropout to the worldwide CEO of Ogilvy & Mather, John Seifert's career feels like the plot of a movie. On today's Starting Out, I spoke with John about the very unlikely paths he has taken to get to what may be the pinnacle of his career. John, who grew up as a shy Wisconsin kid who was transplanted to California, has felt like somewhat of an outsider his whole life, perhaps because he liked to play office and drag around a suitcase while his peers were surfing. John joined Ogilvy for a summer job during his sophomore year at the University of Southern California, 38 years ago and never ended up leaving. How John went from an average school student and son to a single mother to heading one of the largest agencies in the world on today's show. My mother is my real hero in life. She moved my brother and me to California when I was when I was 10 years old. And uh, and that was a completely like going to Mars experience. We moved to San Diego. All of a sudden, you know, I rode my bikes. Everyone expected to know how to surf and, you know, be cool on the beach. I was none of those things. Uh, like young Sheldon, I think I was still dragging around a briefcase, you know, as a young nerd. But um, But, you know, eventually got comfortable in California. After my parents' divorce, I didn't take it well, and I think I sort of got a little jaded about my studies, and I had great friends uh, and had a lot of fun in school, but I wasn't a brilliant student. I got through high school. I did graduate, but uh, it was like right at the finish line. What was kind of your dream? What did you want to be, at least when you were a kid, when you were in maybe middle or high school? What was your thinking about what you were going to do when you grew up. I loved going to the textile plants with my father. So I I think business was sort of ingrained in me early on. I used to love to go to meetings with my father and see how he would handle people with my briefcase. (laughs) You know, a lot of what I remember is is my father um, recruiting people to the company. So he would... Um, be talking about the sort of philosophy uh, that he and his father had in terms of, you know, this was a family-run company. So a lot of it was how he described their their values and beliefs and, and point of view of the business. They were, uh, they were, in a way, German taskmasters. You know, they had high respect for quality, technical excellence. Uh, I can remember him, you know, kind of being... If, he, if I ever saw him frustrated, it was usually because somebody didn't, you know, didn't kind of live up to a high enough standard of what he imagined uh, they should be doing. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I kind of remember that as, you know, 
it's not good enough and you got to keep pressing for things to be better uh, from him. And my mother's, my mother was the athlete in the family. So she played everything well. I can't tell you the number of times that I cried over her whipping me at ping pong and, and other things. But my mother was, was really instilled in me the sense of team and, and teamwork and, and, you know, striving to be better at things. Uh, she was a grade school teacher, so she had that kind of natural instinct to teach. But she was my, my hero, and she, she became very successful in the real estate business. And, and I think after being divorced taught me a, a lot about self-reliance and the sort of t- determination to get through. I mean, those are the days when if you were a woman divorced in the early 70s, you couldn't get a credit card. No one would, you know, no one believed you were credit worthy if you weren't married. Uh, and unless you had some big job where you were making lots of money, you were kind of, you were, you know, you were, um, you were put aside, actually. I, I can remember we would go out and, you know, we paid cash for everything uh, so that, that was a really big life moment for me to, to see my mother go through that, but also kind of grow stronger as a result of it. Well, tell me about getting to college and then leaving college. The best part of getting into college was I, I was surrounded by, by smart friends who were going to really good colleges. And so I kind of accepted reality that I was not going to be going to uh, Harvard or Stanford or uh, uh, Notre Dame or, you know, a, a really well-known college. And so USC at the time was, I think, referred to as the University of Spoiled Children. My mother's best friend, who actually worked for David Ogilvy, told me uh, one summer running on the beach that I was not academically performing well and I may have no future in this world if I didn't pull up my socks. And her solution to this was to get me a summer internship at Ogilvy. And so she called a friend in New York, and he happened to be the president of Ogilvy in the U.S., Bill Phillips, and who ultimately became uh, a worldwide chairman and CEO. And he gave me my summer job. And um, I, I was thrilled, actually, because the, the whole idea of going into a, you know, a business environment, not knowing a thing, but having a chance to learn, I just thought was a really exciting, you know, scary, but I thought it was really exciting. I was absolutely madly in love, like within 15 minutes of walking in the office. I just loved the energy, the vibe, the sense of, of um, importance that, that people had for the work and, and the creativity of it. And I think I, 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 never, I never studied all night ever. And I think I worked two all-nighters in the first two weeks I was there. And, and it was just because I just didn't want to go home. It was so, it was so, much, so much fun. Do you remember kind of your first or second day or maybe in your first weeks? I do. I was assigned to what was then a kind of not very capable account executive who had to prepare a 300 slide in the old days of the, you know, the Kodak Chrome slides. slides. Slide presentation for a major, um, uh, a major presentation in Europe for the Mattel account. And he had to go to 10 different people to put this, these slides together it involved uh, creative work and strategy and all kinds of things. And uh, we, ha- we were literally doing photography for these slides. We were, you know, typesetting the, the, the slides, the type behind it. And I can remember uh, day two, this might have been led to the all-nighter. He's walking down the hall and he forgets to put that circular ring on top. The slides fall out. We were meant to do a rehearsal with the senior vice president on the account. 
And it was just, I never heard anyone get yelled at, you know, so intensely. And I, I said to myself, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> so, um, so, but it was a the, great lesson to always put the thing on the put top the, of the thing. Put the thing on the top, <laughs> exactly. But it, I, I often tell people this, that, you know, this, this account executive was not going to be my ticket to, you know, stardom. But I quickly understood what he did well and didn't do well. And it became a sort of way of learning about how to model your behavior, your your approach to problem solving and others that, that was invaluable. And so I just, I was literally hooked from, from day one. So, so I start the internship. Uh, I have a fantastic summer and I just decide I can't go back. I can't, I just can't do it. So I walked in to my supervisor's office, not the guy I had been working, not the kind of idiot I'd been working with most of the summer who didn't, I don't even think he lasted the summer, but I went into his boss's boss and said, listen, here's the deal. I really want to stay. I'm doing important. I think I was so arrogant. I said, I'm doing important work here. I can't let this go. And, um, but I said, here's the deal. If you let me keep working, I'll go to school at night and finish my degree. Now, remind you, I had just finished my sophomore year. So, um, you know, normally they weren't interested in, you know, a sophomore going on to be a junior starting in the agency. I wore them down. I just would not give up. And I, and if that person didn't give me a yes, finally, I, I went to someone else. I think after the fourth person, they just said, we can't take it this anymore. Okay. Persistence. Persistence. Annoyance. So they, they said, here's the deal. We'll pay you minimum wage, which was $2.10 an hour. And, um, but here's the thing. We're going to check that you're finishing your degree. And we want to see, you know, we want to see that you've gone to class and all the rest of it. I think I went to two classes. <laughs> they didn't check. So I muddled my way through. I think I, I finished. I may have gotten, I don't know, four or five more credits in my junior year. And then I just stopped. One of the one of the best pieces of advice um, I've ever gotten is make yourself indispensable. Yeah. And sometimes that's that means sticking yourself into places where, you know, they don't think they need you, but you think you need they need you. Yeah. And then just never letting go. Exactly. And the more little things that you did that that raised expectations, the more indispensable you became. Give me an example. Well, so my one of my first promotions was we used to have to get up at five in the morning to the most junior account people on the Mattel account. We used to produce something like 300 TV commercials a year. Um, and most of those never saw the light of day because you did them to basically sell in the toy, the new toy at Toys R Us or whatever it was. And if they didn't buy the toy, you didn't run the commercial. But you had to do the commercial to try and get the toy sold. And so... I decided, I said, you know, those breakfasts that we do for these meetings, 7 a.m. meetings, clients would have to come to the agency, approve the rough cut, which we'd show on film. Um, They'd have to approve it, and they wanted to get to their offices before, you know, craziness started with the traffic. So we always used to put on a breakfast, and it always used to be the same thing. And so I thought, well, let's mix this up. So I went to, I went and got fresh orange juice. I went and like did this whole buffet of things that they'd never, ever had before. You would have thought I gave them gold bars. I mean, I got promoted like five minutes after the, they left. They just said, that was amazing. You're a genius. You know, it's like, what? Serving breakfast is how you get promoted around but what here? what made you think that? What made you think I need to shake this I up? I wanted, because it was always in a, a tense meeting, 
the agency was on on a pin cushion because if you didn't if they didn't approve the film you would probably have to work you know like crazy to get them to come back and approve it again so it was always a super tense you you had i think an hour maybe a little more than an hour to sell you know sometimes you might show them 20 different films so everyone was on you know was anxious everyone was on high alert and i just thought this will just be you know a bit of a you know let's just make it a little more relaxed and uh so you know that was it, but it was an important it was an important lesson because you know a lot of people would say well that's not really value added work but it it got me connected emotionally both to the clients and to the agency team in a way that i think they thought that was ahead of my time I hope you're enjoying the podcast. But right now, a quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. You should join our community so you can get a first-hand look at how digital is transforming the world of media and marketing. You get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and lots of invitations to very exclusive member-only events. It's only $33 a month, so please sign up at digiday.com. And for you, because you're listening to our podcast, we have a discount offer. If you want to get 25% off your subscription, enter the code Starting Out at checkout. Now, back to the episode. Emotion is important, I think, forgotten. Yeah. I think the yeah. fact that, I mean, at the end of the day, it's advertising. Exactly. It's, it's supposed to be fun, at least theoretically. Right. How does that then work internally? Because it's also a business where you get, if you're creative, you're getting ideas rejected. You're, and yeah. that's part of it. How do you make sure that it still retains that emotional connection that people while they know their ideas are getting rejected they're not the ones getting rejected you really have to understand especially as you became a manager through the years how did you figure out that lesson how do you do that well I learned that lesson really well in early on when I um, when a client was being pretty nasty to the team around work and had rejected I think two or three rounds of work and wasn't being clear about why they were rejecting the work. They were just saying, I don't see it. It's not here. I don't feel it, whatever. And it, became, it almost then got personal. And I remember this like it was yesterday. I basically stopped the meeting and said, we won't be treated like this. Um, and I had no position power to do that. I was just mad. I just felt we were being, and, and I, was, I was trying to put myself in front of the creative team to say, you don't, you, this is unfair to you. I am telling you that probably got me three promotions because as I was seen to be defending, you know, the, team. the my team and, and, and I was not going to let a client that I thought was being unreasonable or unfair, um, you know, emotionally damage my team. What that said to the team was that this is someone who they could trust, that this is someone that they could admit if they didn't think the work was good enough or, if they were un, un, uh, certain about how to how to represent you know their work to their best ability, they could count on me to help them. And and I think that that really that was a big part of me feeling comfortable being a leader. Is that um, that's a really rewarding feeling when other people trust you to you know lead them into whatever. Tell me about a time you feel you weren't the best manager or supporter that you could have been. Well, that was maybe the turning point in my career. I was in Bangkok. I'd, I'd been um, transferred to the, our office in Thailand to, to help them regain their uh, stature on the American Express account. It was a big break for me because it was not only was I asked to go to Thailand to work on American Express, but I was given the opportunity to be the general manager of the office. And... Uh, I'd never been to Asia before, 
I left Chicago 40 below zero. I landed in Bangkok 140. And immediately started sweating. Buckets. Yeah. Exa- and then realized that the Thai people were not sweating at all. Yeah, they weren't sweating. And they also weren't speaking English. So the, just the cultural shock of this dirty, crowded, dense Asian city that had all this mystery to it and people who basically could not speak my language and who kept bowing because in Thailand, you know, if you're a foreigner, they tend to, you know, say they have to be lower than you. So it was such an uncomfortable experience. And and my first few months there were deeply frustrating because I thought I had to prove myself and the way to prove myself was to show them how smart I was. So I would constantly go to meetings. I would try and introduce ways of thinking or ideas or points of view that I thought made me look really smart. And what I realized is that that was not what they needed. They didn't need somebody to make them, you know, for them to think was smart. They needed somebody who would listen and help them, you know, uh, get better. And, and, and I would hide in my office because I was uncomfortable, not speaking the language, not, not really knowing whether I was being culturally sensitive or not. And so I just kept writing what we call decks, right? I just kept writing documents as if somehow it'll be magically seen in my paperwork, what a great guy I am. And I ended up, uh, going to a meeting presenting what I thought was really brilliant work to a big client meeting. And in the first five minutes, they stopped paying attention to me and started speaking Thai. And it was like, I was invisible. I mean, they literally like ignored me. And I went back home and I started to cry almost uncontrollably because I just felt so rejected. And I felt like such a failure. And I called my sponsor who had actually been instrumental in, in moving me from Chicago to Thailand. And I said, I made a terrible mistake. You made a terrible mistake. I shouldn't be here. It was like Dorothy, click my heels and get me back to Kansas. Take me back to Kansas. And um, he he laughed at me. He said, "You must be joking." He said, "We didn't. You know, we didn't. We haven't invested in you. We haven't done all this to you know have you cry and say you can't do it." He basically said, "Get off your ass. Get out of your office, and go do things that'll be helpful." And and I would suggest not writing decks anymore. How old were you? I was 29. And I'm telling you, it was like just weights had been lifted from me because rather than trying to impress, I went and listened. And and I really then just tried to coach uh, individuals. I found ways of getting around the language barriers. I just became a presence in teams as opposed to, you know, trying to be the what they call the farong, the foreigner who knew everything. And it, it, it was such a it was such a shock of humility because it, it just taught me that, you know, you're only as good as how is the permission others give you to, you know, to to do what you do. And 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 that takes generosity that takes not making it about you and making it about them. And and I would say if I hadn't learned that lesson there, I tell this all the time, there's no chance in hell I could have ever become chief executive of the company because it was just, it was exactly what I needed to rethink what was important. When you, once that was done, you know, you kept rising up the ranks and you were going from strength to strength. Um, were you a planner? Were you planning the next five years of your career, the next 10 years? How did, did, did everything happen just sort of seemingly by chance, but not really? Um, I had had, uh, this is another really important lesson, which again, I don't think we practice as well as we should. 
the mentors I had at Ogilvy would always talk to me about a three horizon view of my, my career. They would say, here's how we think you're doing today. Here's what we think what you're doing today leads to in terms of the next job or the next job. And then here are the, here's the collection of things we think you should do over the next decade if you want to continue to be vital to the company. No one ever said, oh, we've got the plan for you to become the CEO one day. They just always talked about it in a short, medium, and long-term context. So they never made the short-term feel like that was the end of the road, but they always made it clear that you weren't going to get to the medium term if you didn't do well in the short term. And then they said the long term is ultimately going to be decided by a collection of experiences. So, you know, when I was in Asia, they said, you probably will have two jobs in Asia. Then we think you need to probably come back to a place like New York or London, work on global client business. You'll do that for a while. We'll give you multiple experiences in that, and then we'll see what happens. Maybe you run a market. Maybe you run a region. Maybe you run a global function. So they never said it's going to be this. And so once you have that conversation, you don't wake up every morning thinking, oh, my God, you know, what's my timetable? I've got to do X. You just kind of do it. But you're in such, I mean, you're in such a unique place because I think the idea of a 38-year career at one company is foreign. It's completely jarring. And I think if you tell even a 30-year-old today, and I'm not even talking about very young people, I'm talking about people in their second or third jobs by now, that almost feels unthinkable. Yeah. Do you have to, when you're talking to younger people across the world at Ogilvy today, do you have to find the way to translate that without making it sound like, well, yeah. you're going to be here for another no, 100 years? No, and I always tell them that while it's true that looking back, I've been in one company, all my experiences feel like I've been in multiple companies. I mean, it isn't that I've never had offers to leave Ogilvy. I have, but but not serious ones, not ones that I gave much thought to. Um, and I would have done it if I thought, you know, there wasn't more to learn at Ogilvy. There weren't more things to, more people to experience and learn from. What Ogilvy's been for me is just a place and a culture and a point of view that seem boundaryless. I mean, no one tells you at Ogilvy, don't do something. Or if they do tell you that, you should laugh in their face because it's not really who we are. Um, and if anyone thinks they think that's, thinks that's true, it tends to be made up in their head. Uh, not literally said to them. So I've just felt that I've had a lifetime of experiences. It just happened to be in one, you know, one branded organization. But I, you, you wouldn't, I don't feel like I've ever been trapped or, you know, oh my God, I've only been in one company or, or do I more, nor have I ever felt I can't wait to get the gold watch. And, you know, it's like, I'm not adding up the years. I tell people how long I've been in the company more now than I ever have, not because I think of it as some magic accomplishment. I do it to give them perspective of my perspective. You know, I really do believe in the in the philosophy that you stand on the shoulders of those who come before you. And for me, I don't want to let them down. So my view is very, do whatever it takes today to, you know, have people feel that you're doing the right thing for the future. And and that's easier to do when you when you think to yourself, you know, oh my God, I've been here a long time. So, you know... <laughs> 
That's John Seifert, and that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. Our producers, Aditi Sangal. If you like our show, please subscribe and share it. How you can do that? Rate us, leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. I'm Shreen Patak. We'll see you next week.